0: Hey, let's get our Bibles. Where, you know what, man? The prophets are speaking. So I just thought, why, you know, uh, interrupt, right? We're just going to continue to push right after. Uh, and I hope it's okay. You guys are spend a little bit of time in our Old Testament. You know, the Bible's very clear. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if God has said it, we need it. Amen? And so let's take our Bibles and turn in them to the book of Zephaniah. You're going to find it right after Habakkuk. Uh, And we're just going to look at the first chapter today, all 18 verses. We're able to take a little bit larger chunks when we uh, go through sections of Scripture like this. And a message that I have uh, entitled, A Day of Darkness, Distress, and Devastation. How's that for an uplifting uh, (laughs) afternoon at church? (laughs) Let's take our hearts to the Lord. God, we are so grateful just to come here and just... uh, bathe and be washed in the waters of your word. And so to that end, God, we pray that you would just wash over us, that you would cleanse us, that you would have your way in us, that you would pour your spirit out upon us, and that you would minister, God, as only you can, right here as you make your way through the midst of us. Our ears are open, our hearts are open, God. We would say, speak and have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said... Amen. Guys, we only thought that Habakkuk was an often neglected book of the Bible. I mean, when was the last time you spent time in or heard a message delivered from the book of Zephaniah? I mean, you know, we almost feel sorry for old Zephaniah, you know, and that his written warning is rarely even looked at, much less paid attention to. And uh, for as brief as it is, though it ends in redemption and deliverance, it certainly opens in darkness and devastation. It's without a doubt written in what we might consider to be a minor key. And so uh, be prepared, Uh, though hope is on the way, there is certainly a heaviness uh, to this book, a day of darkness. But it ends in light. And you know what, you guys? That's the way ancient Israel... You know, we see day beginning like at 6 a.m., beginning in the light. It heads to darkness. But did you know in ancient Israel, they actually began the day when the sun went down. The day began in darkness, and then the morning star would arise and bring light. And so we have Jesus, the bright and morning star. And so the day of the Lord begins in darkness, as we will see. But it ends in the light with the coming of Christ. Amen? And so, like Habakkuk, uh, Zephaniah was what we call a pre-exilic prophet. Uh, What that means is of the 12 minor prophets in your Bible, they're divided basically into two groups, one of which prophesied before Judah was taken into exile by the Babylonians, the other of which wrote during and after the return of Israel uh, to the Promised Land. So of the the nine pre-exilic prophets... Zephaniah was the last, the final, we might say, word of warning. Now, I should also say that as with many of the prophecies found in Scripture, we find what we call near-far fulfillments in the word that God gave him. He speaks over and over again, as we'll see, the theme just lifts out almost immediately and stays constant throughout, and it's the day of the Lord. This ultimate judgment that God will pour out on a rebellious and Christ-rejecting world. Yet what will be fulfilled in a time still yet future was certainly foreshadowed in the destruction of Jerusalem as Babylon utterly annihilated it in the outpouring of God's judgment against it. And so we see both historical confrontation, we see future tribulation, but what that means for you and me is that there's plenty of application. And so uh, an outline of the book, if you're into outlines and such, you might say uh, chapter 1, the first six verses is the decree of the Lord. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 7, all the way through the third chapter and verse 8, we find the day of the Lord, and then the remaining of the book the deliverance of the Lord. Okay, so you're with me. Let's turn our attention to the very first verse uh, of the book. Now, if you're in Zechariah, we might need to wait on you for a minute because we're actually in Zephaniah. Okay, so you want to make your way there right after Habakkuk. We have Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Akushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, this very first verse of the book of Zephaniah really sets it apart, doesn't it, from most of the other writings of the prophets in that he takes great pains, careful measure, to establish for us both the time in which he's writing and his personal lineage leading all the way back To King Hezekiah. So really, Zephaniah leaves very little to our speculation. And as to where Habakkuk, if you recall, basically sort of exploded onto the scene, seemingly out of nowhere, you know, historically speaking, Zephaniah, who was writing in the same basic era, took great pains to pinpoint for us who he was and when he was writing. He was, if you follow the line back that he gave you, he was the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah, which ultimately would have made him a cousin to Josiah, the king who was upon the throne when he penned his prophecy. There was royal blood flowing through the veins of Zephaniah. Now, his name actually means um, Yahweh has hidden or God hides What that probably implies to us is since he was, I would say, with fairly resolved certainty, born in the days of Manasseh, he was probably taken and hidden so that he wouldn't be killed, being seen as a contention uh, to the throne of Manasseh. Manasseh would have had him killed because he would have seen him as a rival to his throne. You see... Someone sort of most likely hid him until he was of age. Now, of course, we find it interesting that he had this royal blood, that he was a a, a cousin to Josiah because that indicates that he probably had a unique access to King Josiah. And there's very little doubt that what he wrote here served as a catalyst or at least added maybe extra energy to the inertia that formed the revival in King Josiah's day. Now, his revival, the the revival under Josiah, wasn't a great revival, okay? Uh, It was more of a moral reformation than a national inward transformation, and that's indicated by the fact of the rapid moral decline. Just as soon as Josiah died, the fact that God did send them into captivity, into Babylon, because they had refused, ultimately, uh, to repent of their sin, but Zephaniah, as I said, more than likely, born under the reign of Manasseh, the single most wicked king in Judah's history, followed by the brief rule of Amon, Manasseh's son, means that Zephaniah, he saw the gross idolatry of wicked rebellion, the open defiance and disobedience of the nation against God. And so his message is a harsh message of judgment that will come lest they repent. And as I said, it's in this interim period, right? Amon has been assassinated. Josiah's been put on the throne. It's been about 12 years into his reign. And between the assassination and the ultimate, you know, uh, reformation that Josiah begins to make, it's in this this interim period, that 12-year period that he wrote this letter that undoubtedly influenced his cousin in a righteous and godly way. Now, one might wonder, hey, Josiah, what's the deal? Why would you wait 12 years uh, to begin to make these, these reforms, these, put these laws into place in your nation? It seems like that's a long time to wait, and you would be right. But understand, you guys, that Josiah took the throne when he was eight years old. Okay? Uh, His genuine, what we might consider to be uh, conversion or salvation experience took place when he was 16 years old. Uh, That's when he began to seek the Lord. Guys, I'm telling you that God can change the world through a young man Or a young woman who loves God is dedicated and separated unto God. Amen? I mean, God loves to use young people. You just look throughout the script. Now, God loves to use all people. You think of Abraham. You think of Moses. But then you start thinking of, like, Daniel. You think of Jeremiah. You think of Josiah. It's an awesome sight to see God grab hold of and begin to use in radical ways young lives. Now, Josiah dedicated his life to God when he was just 16 years old and as he sought the Lord uh, began to grow in the Lord that's when he began to start making these changes to the landscape of the nation no different than you and me when we come to Jesus begin to grow in Jesus the landscape of our lives begins to change doesn't it And he began to make these changes both physically and spiritually when he reached the age of about 20. And he started purging the land of idols and trying to undo all the damage that Manasseh had done. Uh, But as I said, though, what was happening in his heart was genuine. It was transformation. What was happening in the nation, more than not, unfortunately, was, well, it was reformation. But guys, here's the deal. It's not enough to simply change the laws of a country. Now, that's essentially what Josiah did. And though it serves a moral good, and we're grateful when any kind of righteous uh, law is set in motion, we, you know, we appreciate that. Uh, it's not the outward that's in need of a change. You understand that, yeah? I mean, God's looking for a change of the heart. And this country doesn't simply need more Christian politicians looking to pass Christian laws. Now, that would be nice. Like I say, we love it when that happens. Uh, But it's really not the answer. What's going to serve this nation is the transformation of the hearts of the people in it, right? The, The going forth, the inner workings of the gospel. Just obeying the law doesn't make people right with God. We've got to be well, the Bible says, born again as by the Spirit of God. We've got to be forgiven of our sin and made alive to God through Christ Jesus. And so in other words, it's, it's, not, it's not reformation that we need. It's transformation. And real quick, guys, before we move on, I want to note the words in the very first verse, the very first words of the very first verse. It says, the word of the Lord. I love that. I've underlined that. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah. Now, why do I highlight that? Well, because I believe that a word of caution needs to be considered here. Zephaniah, understand, was charged by God to give his people, Zephaniah's people, a word from God, the word of God. He wasn't speculating. He wasn't speaking from his own heart. He was speaking on behalf of the Lord. Now, I have noticed, and the reason that I point this out is because I have noticed over the last few years, maybe you have as well, this upsurge in what's called or considered prophetic words. Uh, They're cropping up on various Christian programs, social media platforms... And it seems that a lot of people today are giving us a word from the Lord. You know what I mean? Uh, People who would just have you believe that perhaps they conversate with God like you would a good buddy. I mean, they're just always hearing from God. And they have a word for the church. Or they have a word for this country. Or perhaps they have a word for your life personally. Especially, I have noted, in this politically charged climate in which we find ourselves currently. I'm just telling you. Be careful, okay? Be cautious. Don't forget the admonition of the Apostle John. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Guys, I'm real... Now, they're not, they're not running around in like black capes and top hats and... Top hats and handlebar mustaches and like, <laughs> a false prophet, you see. Yeah, like to make this easy, like discernible thing for you, right? I mean, I, I'm just saying they, they, they look right, they speak right, it sounds right, it's what you want to hear, you know. I'm real careful when someone starts saying words like God said or God told me or you know the lord revealed to me and, and and i'm just you know want you to know that god does not take it lightly when others presume to speak on his behalf okay in the book in the book of ezekiel we read this thus says the lord god woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen Nothing. Think about that. He says they have envisioned futility and false divination. In other words, they speak with this This, uh, how do you say, this great illiterate or this great, you know, all of these, these great fanciful words, but God has given them no illumination. God's not really given them any revelation. And he says, they're speaking with false divination, saying, thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope the word may be confirmed. They're saying this, and then they're like hoping that it comes to pass, right? Have you not seen a futile vision, and have you not spoken false divination? You say, the Lord says, but I have not spoken. And therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken nonsense, oh my, and envisioned lies, therefore I am indeed against you, says the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who envision futility and divine lies, and they shall not be in the assembly of my people. Think about that. I'm trying to think there's a section of Scripture where God is giving a a kind of a similar warning where he says, you know, they they prophesy lies and the people love to have it so, but what will you do in the end? You know, just because someone tells you something that's like, yeah, you know, and, and they tack God's name on the end of it, how does that serve you in the end? Paul said it like this, you know, in the last days people will heap up for themselves teachers having itching ears, right? Listen, if God gives you a word, it will come to pass. You don't have to hope it will be confirmed. God never misses. Is there anything God can't do? There's a few number of things. He can't lie. He, he can't fail, right? He never misses. He, he, he never gets it wrong. The glaring problem with people who confidently speak on behalf of God is the fact that it's not uncommon for them to be, what I say, confidently wrong. You know, they speak with confidence. They wax eloquent with boldness. But their words fall to the ground. And it seems that no one seems to notice or hold them accountable for it. Prophecies, now listen, I'm not trying to say you should just dispose or despise it all. Right? The Bible's clear. We're not to despise prophecies, but test all things. Listen, if it doesn't come to pass, you know, like a lot, of, a lot of people have been saying a lot of things around this election cycle and stuff. And if you'll just allow me, people ask me, like, what do you think of this? And I say, you know what? We're going to know in about three or four days, aren't we? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, God hasn't told me what's going to happen, you know. I pray, I trust in the Lord. And I just tell you guys, no matter what happens, our mission objective doesn't change. We're to share Jesus, we're to show Jesus, we're to be the light of the world, we're to keep our mind on things above, not on things of the earth. We're to be eternally minded, not temporally minded, right? But this is the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. Verse (laughs) 2. I promise we'll get through this. I promise we'll get through this. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the, of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. Translation, God is going to judge the earth and everything in it. Is what he's saying. And in in, 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 as he begins with man and he ends with the fish of the sea, he kind of reverses, if you're into these kinds of things, they're kind of interesting to me, he reverses the order of creation. Yes. And it's almost essentially what he's saying is he's going to undo everything that's been done. When it comes to the judgment of God, no one, nothing will escape. Is what he's saying. And so with this unapologetic, horrifying abruptness, Zephaniah announces the universal, catastrophic, cataclysmic judgment of God that's coming to the world. God will utterly consume everything. Jesus said that like this. He said, heaven and earth will pass away. The sky above you, the earth beneath you, God will consume Peter put it like this, he said, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens, notice, will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Everything. Everything, guys. God will consume it all. And therefore, Peter went on to say, you know, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you, ought, I mean, ought we, to be in holy conduct and godliness? He's saying, think it through. If this is if this is what this world is headed for ultimately, what kind of life ought you and I to be living presently? You see. Wow. Over and over again, throughout the Word of God, we're given the warnings to watch, to be ready, because this day is on the way. Guys, we serve a God who is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come uh, to repentance. Uh, We serve a God, we discussed it last week, who delights in showing mercy. However, God is also just. He is holy. He is righteous. And as such, his righteousness, his justice must be satisfied. Question, is there anything that anyone can do to escape this judgment? Well, fortunately for us, there is. And we'll, we'll talk about that as our time uh, kind of winds to a close a little bit later. But this is what's going to happen ultimately, globally, setting this stage for eternity. But now, you know, Zephaniah begins to to kind of narrow. So this is the broad. This is ultimately. This sets the stage for eternity as as the Lord comes back. You see, now he begins to narrow his scope in specifically upon the nation of Judah and what would culminate for them in being carried away into captivity in Babylon. Notice verse 4. He says... I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal or Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan uh, priests, those who, who worship the hosts of heaven on the housetops. Now that just means like a, they, they have flat tops, okay? So it'd be like out on the deck or out there where they, uh, you know, hang out those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord but also swear swear by Milcom or Milcom those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him now i mentioned a minute ago uh, that thanks to manasseh uh, idolatry was rife in judah pagan influence was of these epic proportions. And God says, I am going to stretch out my hand. Okay? Now, uh, when God stretches out his hand, he says, I'm going to stretch out my hand against Judah. When God stretches out his hand, what that means is judgment is coming. Okay? God will not share his glory With another. Uh, There is no other God. And in turning to these pagan idols, they turned away from God. God says, I'm bringing judgment, you see. And let me just say that the beginning of the end for any nation is when they forsake God and pursue other priorities in His place. Okay? Power, money, pleasure, you know, you get the idea. They become. Uh, it, it, Judah had become guilty of sins of commission, right? The sins of commission, meaning they, they, what they did, they worshiped idols and they engaged in all the rituals and the practices that went along with it. But they're not only sin, uh, guilty of the sins of commission, but also of omission, meaning they did not seek the Lord. They did not worship the Lord or honor the Lord with the practices that accompany that. Guys, listen, God considers it sin, Yes, not only when we do what is wrong, okay, but when we don't do what is right. Okay, so there's sins of commission, there's sins of omission. To him who knows to do what's right and does not do it to him, it is what? It is sin, okay? But the downfall of any nation is always the same. It begins with, and we'll just call it religious apostasy, a turning away from the true and living God. From there it spirals into a decline of morality and then it becomes political anarchy. That's how nations fall into ruin. Now, I'll let you decide which phase of that America finds itself in today. Religious apostasy, uh, a lapse of morality or political anarchy, but those are the steps that lead a nation down the path to ruin. Historically, there's never been an exception, okay? Now... Perhaps I should uh, also point out that you don't have to be bowing down to a little trinket to be guilty of idolatry, okay? Paul says in the book of Colossians, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, notice, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So if you find yourself guilty of covetousness, you know... Someone else has it, but you want it. You can covet a person's wife. You can covet a person's husband. You can covet a person's position, their power, their wealth, their possessions, whatever. They have it. You want it. That's covetousness. And if you're wrestling with covetousness, then it could be you may be wrestling with idolatry, a passion, a priority that trumps God in your life, you understand. But because of the sin of idolatry, God says he's going to stretch out his hand against Judah and cut off, I want you to notice, every trace, every trace of Baal. Now, Baal was the agricultural, the fertility god of the Canaanites. And you can imagine all of the, the, you know, the gross immorality that went along with that. But God is letting them know that it's all got to go. Now, they can either deal with it through repentance, right, in, in righteousness, or He will deal with it in judgment. But either way, it's got to go. Guys, it's God's desire that we hear, here's the application, that we hear His Word and we respond in obedience, okay? But He's willing to discipline us because He loves us. He's willing, He's looking out for us from an eternal perspective. So he says, every trace of Baal, it's, it's got to go. Also, he mentions Moloch or Milcom. Okay, the same, same fellow. Now, Moloch was the horrifying, the horrific god of the Ammonites who was honored by infant sacrifice. Okay, uh, you can look this guy up and, and see images of him. Uh, he had the body of a man, the head of a bull. He was seated on a throne with his arms outstretched like this. And uh, the way that they would honor and worship him is the backside of the throne would be hollowed out, and they would build a fire under the backside of the throne and stoke it till uh, the arms, the outstretched arms of Molech, began to burn red hot. And then, of course, the tribal drums and the wailings and the writhings to drown out the screams, they would take the infant and they would lay the infant in the arms of Moloch. And this is how they would sacrifice uh, the infant to him. But listen, God says, I'm talking to you, Judah. I'm talking to you. Now, initially, let's not forget that Zephaniah... Began with a prophecy that was pretty broad, wasn't it? I mean, it, he was he was talking about the judgment of God that was going to come upon the whole world. But God wasn't gonna allow them to think that maybe, okay, perhaps He's He's speaking to others, right? But but not to not to us. Now the reason that I say that is because sometimes, you know, here we are, you and me, and uh, and, and, or, or we're somewhere, whatever the case may be. We're listening to a good Bible study. Everything's right on point, and we're thinking, "Man, man, I wish so and so were here to hear this, right?" And 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 maybe so and so would really, truly benefit from it. But perhaps God would say, "Hey, hey, hey, listen. Put your name in the blank. Uh, I'm I'm talking to you, right? I mean." This, this isn't for so-and-so. Oh, it may be. Ultimately, it may apply even specifically, you see. But you're here right now in this place, and God says, don't think about so-and-so, right? I'm talking to you. And I want you to notice that God says he would cut off every trace. In other words, he wants all of your heart, okay? Not most of it with traces of carnality or compromise still somewhat prevalent in it. So often, I mean, if we're to be honest, that's where we find ourselves. You know, God wants to cut off every trace of the indulgence of the flesh, that we would seek Him, that we would serve Him, that we would walk in the Spirit, you know, uh, to get rid of most of the junk in our lives. God says, that's not enough. Well, I'm better than I used to be. That's the mentality that we often will gravitate toward, you know. That's not God's mentality. He wants the whole of your heart. Not not just the most of it, not the well, I'm way better than I used to be, you know, kind of a thing. So I've still got this and I've still got that, but I don't do this and I don't do that, and I don't do that. I'm in a way better place than I used to be. Well, hey, listen, God says that's not that's that's not what we're doing here. We're not striking a deal. I want it all. I want the whole of your heart, you see. The idol's got to go. The false priest will be put away. He mentions three forms of idolatrous worship, those who worship the hosts of heaven. In other words, they allow their lives to be led through astrology. You see, they worship the creation rather than the creator. And then there are those who try to worship, he says, and to me, this is ultimately the worst of the category, is those who try to worship God and Molech. You know, Jesus brought up God and mammon and how you'll love one and hate the other, be loyal to one, despise the other. There's not room for two. You know, it's like it's like there's a like the old Western standoff, there's not room for the both of us in this here heart. Someone's gotta go. Well, hey, you know I'm good with God. I, you know, this this may be the ancient mentality. You know, I go to temple. I I uh, I engage in the rituals. You know of uh, you know that are, are required of me through the law. You see, uh, but you know I do this too. I honor Molech. I do on the say you know when I'm not here, I'm doing this there, guys. It can be very subtle, thinking that we can get away with certain things. Because we go to church on Sunday, we do our religious duty before God, thinking that earns us like a little bit of a pass, you know, in this area over here. Today we might call it churchianity, right? That's what, the, that's what the, you know, people still living in sin, still practicing immorality, but think they're doing their religious duty by going to church. They pretend to worship God, but they make a practice of giving themselves over to the things of the flesh. In the book of Revelation, remember Jesus talked about that a little bit. He said, that's lukewarm. He said, man, I'd rather you be hot or cold, but this lukewarm business, it's got to go. And then there were those who simply didn't seek God at all. They weren't seeking Him. They didn't care to. And so we have here what? Idolatry, spiritual adultery, and total apostasy. And these are the things that invoke or incite God's judgment. Now, verse 7, be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. And in the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. Here's the, here's the short. Rich, poor, princes, paupers, doesn't matter. None will escape the judgment of God. Okay. Verse 7 he says be silent in the presence of the Lord God for the day of the Lord is at hand. The idea being that such impending judgment guys should evoke fear and awe and silence. Hey, you are in the presence of the living God. Hold quiet. See idea? Last week, we highlighted how people react or respond when they come into contact with the holiness of God. And and that's the idea here. That God is holy. His judgment is coming. And that should evoke a reverence inside of us. You know, in in the book of Revelation, in the uh, 8th chapter, when the 7th seal, John cites for us that when the 7th seal was opened we read that there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Just this. You know, God says, I'm preparing a sacrifice. Guys, do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that Judah is the sacrifice and that the Babylonians are the invited guests that will partake. Now you get it, right? Now you understand the call for silence. He says, Think about what's coming your way. The royalty, those who you'd think would be the honored guests, will be sacrificed just the same. None will be exempt. They've adopted, he says, foreign policies, foreign practices, and they will be punished. Now, it's not that it's wrong to appreciate another culture. The idea here is that they abandoned the Lord, their identity in Him, His instructions for their lives. They didn't want to honor God. They wanted to be like the ungodly nations around them, you see. And so in verse... uh, 10, he says, And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Marktesh, uh, for all the merchant people who are cut, da- are, are cut down and all those who handle money are cut off. The short of this is that there will be a wailing from every direction, the north, the south, the east, the west. It's another way, you guys, of saying no one's going to escape, okay? Verse 12, and it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart that God, that the Lord will, will not, uh, not do good, nor will he do evil. And therefore their goods shall become booty or treasure, and their houses a desolation, and they shall build houses, notice, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. Guys, God just... I don't know how to say other than he just continues to emphasize the comprehensive nature of his judgment. False priests, idolaters, spiritual adulterers, uh, those that are unfaithful to God, those who have simply abandoned him altogether, political leaders, princes, paupers, everywhere, every direction, those who are settled in complacency, that is, they're indifferent inwardly. They say in their heart, the Lord won't do anything, really, be it good or or bad. Uh, th- those who are, uh, you know, they just feel feel like God is, is just uh, disconnected, just distant. He's detached from their lives. You know, maybe God created everything, wound it up or like a clock or something, but he's not involved anymore. He just kind of let it go. He's not going to interfere, you know, for good or for bad. He doesn't really care if he's even there. And so they find themselves settled in complacency. That is, unmotivated to really change their lives. No real need to or desire to honor God. Kind of like our country today. God says, I'm coming for you. He says, He will search Jerusalem with lamps. That's what he means when he he says that. I'm coming for you. There's no place to hide. You're not going to find this dark corner or some cellar. Or he says, I'm searching Jerusalem. With lamps. No one will hide from the judgment of God. Guys, we should have a heart's desire to grow in Christ's likeness. Do you understand that? If that's not happening in your heart, you don't find yourself with this inward desire to be more and more pleasing to God. That's what he's talking about, who are settled. In complacency, they're indifferent inwardly. I'd encourage you, if you haven't changed things up in a while, think about it. You know, get involved in a ministry. Maybe go on a mission trip. Try sharing the gospel with someone or inviting someone to church. You know, challenge yourself to grow. Don't settle in complacency. It's so dangerous, you see. God tells them that because of their complacency, their goods shall be treasure for their enemy. They'll be judged before they enjoy their new houses or the fruit of their vineyards. And in verse 14, he says, "'The great day of the Lord is near. "'It is near and hastens quickly. "'The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. "'There the mighty men shall cry out. "'That a day is a day of wrath, "'a day of trouble and distress, "'a day of devastation and desolation, "'a day of darkness and gloominess.'" A day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. It says, Don't be deceived about the nearness of God's judgment nor the extent of the destruction. It will be a day of wrath, distress, devastation, desolation, and darkness. Let me remind you that even in judgment, God is still love. He judges because it is essential for him to judge that which is evil. He has to be true to himself. And God couldn't be good if he didn't judge evil. How could God be loving if he did not judge sin? But because he loves, because he's good, because he's holy, He does judge sin. And these things are just the foreshadowing of the ultimate judgment whereby He'll he'll remove sin altogether. Amen, what a glorious day that was. But we read in verse 17, I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned, notice, against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of His jealousy. For He will make speedy, He will make quick work, is what He's saying. Speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. God makes it plain. He will judge the sinfulness of Judah should they not repent. There's not going to be any holding back, he says, of the fullness of his judgment. Their silver, their gold won't deliver them. Listen, God really doesn't care how much money you may have. You know, it won't save you in the day of wrath. You know, we live in a day and at a time where it seems like if you have enough money or maybe you're in a certain level of prominence politically you know, you're just above the law. It doesn't matter. You can just kind of do what you want. You can escape the just consequences of unlawful actions, uh, of sin. But God's saying, none will escape my judgment. Uh, Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Where's that? You can make your way up. The day is coming, you guys, when the dead both small and great, the Bible is clear, will stand before the throne of God. And all whose names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone day and night forever and ever. Think about that. But here's the good news. Is there anything you can do? Yeah. God has made a way of escape. Jesus has borne the wrath of God paying the penalty for your sin and for mine. And therefore, God can and God wants to justify you and He will in Christ alone. There is no other way nor is there any other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, As I say frequently, I wasn't the first to say it, I believe is in the book of Acts where it's read this way, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved.